means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how the Israeli court system aids in Palestinian oppression. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Asa Winstonley, an investigative journalist and associate editor with the Electronic Intifada. Asa, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you all again. Absolutely. And uh, Asa, earlier this week, uh, a Palestinian aid worker by the name of Mohammed El Halabi was sentenced to 12 years uh, in an Israeli court based on a conviction within a court system that really just seems shoddy at uh, absolute best. And frankly, the situation feels like a a frame up of El Halabi. And I was hoping you could help us understand uh, what the situation is here, uh, uh, Asa, and why it feels like there may be a kind of cover-up afoot in this case. Yes, uh, Mohammed Al-Halabi was the director of an international Christian charity called World Vision. He was the, the director of their Gaza operation for years. And six years ago, he was arrested on his way back into the Gaza Strip by the Israelis. Um, he was denied access to a lawyer for more than 50 days. Um, And, you know, this whole process has been an absolute sham process. It's been a kangaroo court system, really, is what... I mean, this this is what Israel does to Palestinians. Palestinians in the West Bank, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, and even some Palestinians in the 1948 territories occupied by Israel. So that is to say, Palestinian so-called citizens of Israel are held in uh, prisons and in a separate court system from Israeli Jews, and they are subjected to military trials. So, you know, you can imagine, you know, there's the old saying about um, military justice being a contradiction in terms. Well, that's certainly the case with the Israeli military. And with the Israeli military, there's the extra dimension that these, this, this court system is set up to be an apartheid system. So overwhelmingly, these courts, I mean, with a very few exceptional circumstances, um, it's only Palestinians who are, who are tried in these military courts. So Israeli Jews in the West Bank, Israeli settlers who should be there in the first place, are subjected to military, uh, are subjected to civilian you know, even when there is any kind of trial against them, perhaps, for example, for throwing stones at soldiers, which happens quite frequently, um, you know, they're subjected to civilian courts. But Palestinians are selected to the, uh, subjected to this travesty of justice, which is the military court system. And, you know, so in, in this way, unfortunately, Mohammed al-Halabi's trial is not unusual. What is unusual is the international dimensions of it and the implications it has for um, aid, for aid work in in the Gaza Strip, for just charity. So, like, I I wrote an article about this on my Substack last week, and, um, you know, in that I said this is part of Israel's attempt to eradicate all forms of Palestinian existence. And what I mean by that is, of course... Israel, as we know, tries to stamp out all forms of Palestinian resistance. So whether it is armed resistance, whether it is 
Palestinian freedom fighters who are trying to defend their population from the armed attack by Israeli soldiers and Israeli settlers, or peaceful unarmed resistance, whether it's cultural resistance, whether it's BDS, boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, Israel moves to, Israel calls all of this terrorism. You know, there's this extraordinary scenes that we saw, you know, earlier this year when the, the you know famous uh, American ice cream company Ben and Jerry's declared that it would no longer be selling their ice cream inside Israeli settlements in the West Bank because they're illegal under international law. The Israeli government called this ice cream terrorism. You know, it's totally bizarre. Um, so, you know, any, any kind of sympathy with Palestinians is, is kind of outlawed as, 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 as terrorism. So what Israel is now has been, what Mohammed al-Halabi's case represents is an attempt to eradicate international charity efforts inside the Gaza Strip by fabricating a case against this aid worker. And what they said was, what they claimed was that Mohammed al-Halabi was guilty of siphoning off funds to and sending, uh, you know, that were the budget of World Vision, this international charity, and sending them to Palestinian to Palestinian resistance fighters to Hamas, Palestine's Islamic resistance movement, which uh, the political party which rules um, in the Gaza Strip and has an armed wing which resists Israeli soldiers. Now, in actual fact, it turned out that, you know, after numerous investigations, that this was a complete fabrication. You know, there was never any evidence of it in any case, um, that Israel never presented any credible evidence that this was true. And multiple credible investigations showed that actually the opposite was true, that Mohammed al-Halabi um, were always strived to keep World Vision's operations independent from the Hamas government and to to um, put you know, to kind of draw clear water between the two. Um, and so the idea that he would be um, siphoning off funds was ridiculous on its surface, um, but it was there was never any evidence presented of it. And what makes it even more extraordinary was that. After new, but nonetheless, because you know, despite the fact that it was ridiculous, these claims were ridiculous on on their face. They were taken extremely seriously by World Vision, which is this international Christian charity, as I mentioned. Now, World Vision, a large part of its budget comes from the Australian government, and World Vision. There were several investigations launched. World Vision launched an investigation. It then it also commissioned Deloitte. The financial services, um, you know, massive financial services company to conduct a detailed forensic investigation of World Vision's accounts in Gaza. And the Australian government itself also launched its own investigation. Um, meanwhile, World Vision's operations were completely shut down in the Gaza Strip as a preemptive move while these investigations were happening. Now, I can't, you know, I, it hasn't been revealed, or at least to my knowledge, it hasn't been revealed the expense that this Deloitte audit must have incurred, but it must have been incredibly expensive and involved because it it involved an audit of every financial transaction of the World Vision's Gaza operation over a five-year period. And, you know, 
every single one of these investigations completely exonerated Al Halabi. There was no evidence of the Israelis' allegations. And in fact, their allegations were so outrageously fabricated, they didn't even bother to do a good job of it. What was said was that what was claimed and kind of leaked in the Israeli media about Al Halabi was that he had siphoned off $50 million, $50 million over a, a certain number of years and and sent them towards Hamas. Actual, in actual fact, what turned out was that that $50 million figure was more than double the entire World Vision budget for Gaza for that year's in question. So, you know, it, this was a complete fiction. You know, it was a complete fantasy. And yet, um, in, in June, despite all of this evidence, the Israeli judges just basically completely disregarded all this evidence and instead just took the word of secret evidence from the Shibet, Shin Bet, Israel's secret police, and convicted Al Halabi. And he's now just been sentenced to 12 years in prison. It's an absolute disgrace. Uh, you know, Human Rights Watch would call it a miscarriage of justice, but I mean, in my view, that doesn't really go far enough because it's it's a real systemic issue with the nature of Israel and how it oppresses Palestinians. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate that uh, explanation, Asa. And to your point, I mean, I think it just shows that really any form of Palestinian resistance simply cannot be tolerated um, by uh, uh, Zionism. And uh, I think it just sort of pierces this, you know, trope that we often hear uh, that basically any form of resistance from uh, Palestinians is framed as uh, terrorism. But even if you have this uh, uh, sort of you know, nonviolent sort of uh, uh, institution like uh, uh, Mr. El Halabi was uh, helping to uh, run here. Well, even that uh, isn't something that can be accepted either. So the issue isn't this uh, fear mongering around, quote unquote, terrorism. But uh, in truth, it's about trying to shut off any avenue uh, through which Palestinian people and their allies and friends around the world can seek to to help in their situation. And uh, I just think it's really you know, important to sort of highlight this, uh, Asa, as we see uh, uh, just uh, attacks seemingly at every level on the uh, Palestinian resistance movement and the solidarity movement that uh, supports it. You know what I mean? And so sort of having a sort of real example of how this plays out, as you say, I think is really just one way uh, that we see this, you know, constant daily, uh, frankly, nonstop a kind of exploitation of Palestinian people that's uh, uh, become a part of everyday life for them and that we should be sort of organizing to overturn. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this wasn't, I mean, this is this case, I mean, there's, there are so many cases like this. In, in some ways, there are a lot of cases like it. Like, like I said at the beginning, the case of Mohammed al-Halabi is really just symptomatic of such a wider problem with complete lack of accountability uh, with the Israeli court system. You know, Israel's held up to be supposedly the only democracy in the Middle East. It's not a democracy for Palestinians, who are the majority of the people now between the river, the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, it's been recent, you know, Israeli demographers recently, the Israeli press recently uh, admitted that now Palestinians are once again a majority between the river and the sea. 
The majority of people between the river and the sea, Palestinians, for them, Israel is not a democracy, it's an apartheid dictatorship. And this is a, just yet another example of that. And just the, the international dimensions of it, to me, are what make it extraordinary. And I think that it just shows, like as you said, it just shows the uh, contempt Israel has for any kind of accountability or any kind of human rights for Palestinians. You know, this was not a revolutionary or radical group in any way. You know, this is just a charity. They're just trying to aid some of the most vulnerable um, children in the Gaza Strip. It's not um, any kind of activist group. It doesn't even involve anything to do with BDS. And yet, what Israel was trying to do, really, it was trying to... This, this was really a stepping stone for Israel, I think, because it allows them to say, well, it's part of their wider attack on human rights and AIDS, aid groups in the occupied Palestinian territories. And we see it's related to recent moves against Palestinian human rights workers in the West Bank, where they've outlawed now six human rights groups um, and they've attempted to, you know, get uh, European funders to withdraw their aid to these groups, Al-Haq, um, the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, and uh, these other groups that they raided recently and shut down their offices, sealed their doors. Um, they've arrested and harassed some of their leaders and so forth. And so this is, you know, this is kind of the thin end of the wedge where you can see they're starting with this, this group World Vision. You can see them acting against other international charities that act in the, in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank because they're trying to stop any kind of Palestinian life. The, the, you know, the pressure that was put on Al-Halabi was extraordinary, you know. Um, they, as I said, at the beginning, they, they kept him without a, a, a lawyer for 50 days. They subjected over the this so-called trial, which he was, you know, this alleged conviction in, in June... Um, this went on for six years. There was more than 160 hearings. They were putting immense pressure on him to sign a false confession and to say, yeah, you know, I did it, or to cut some sort of plea bargain, um, which would have given him lesser lesser number of years of conviction. But, you know, Al-Halabi resisted that. And, you know, this is a really admirable thing that he did, I think, which is the fact that he didn't want to confess to something that he hadn't done, A, just the principle of that. But also, I think it's obvious, and he must have known, that signing such a false confession would then have been used by the Israelis to say, ah, well, we have to stop all these other charities, Oxfam, you know, the, uh, the Red Cross, um, UN, even the UN and these kind of uh, international aid organizations coming to aid people, some of the most vulnerable people in the occupied territories. Uh, because look, we've got this confession from a senior um, you know, charity workers saying that actually these funds are being used to siphon off to Hamas. So these kinds of um, fabrications uh, are just really flagrant violations by Israel that the Western governments are, you know, they just allow, they get the green light to this, really. You know, the most European governments will do will, will be empty expressions of concern and regret, but they won't actually do anything to prevent them and effectively encourage them by giving Israel constant military, political and financial backing. Yeah, and I was hoping you could say a little more, Asa, uh, about the Shin Bet, this uh, secret police force uh, within Israel mm. and the role that they play in this uh, kind of legal abuse. Yeah, so the Shin Bet is uh, effectively 
Israel's uh, FBI or for British listeners, uh, MI5, you could say, is this, this sort of domestic internal security service. But really, its main role is in oppressing Palestinians. It acts to, well, I'll give you one example from when I used to live in the West Bank um, and the days when I was an activist in the West Bank. Uh, working with the International Solidarity Movement, you know, we used to go on Palestinian demonstrations, nonviolent demonstrations, even like uh, things like olive picking and accompanying children to school and so forth. And, you know, one day I was walking uh, down the street in Ramallah with one of uh, the Palestinian local organizers who was, you know, involved in these kind of peaceful demonstrations and so forth. And his phone started to ring and I heard him speaking in Hebrew. You know, I didn't know that much Arabic in those days. Um, you know, I, I'm, I still only know very basic Arabic, but, you, you know, you can you can tell from the sounds the, the difference between Arabic and Hebrew. And I could hear him speak in Hebrew, you know, like a lot of Palestinians in the West Bank of that generation, there was a time when they were still able to go and uh, go to Israeli areas to, to work. Um, and so they picked up some rudimentary Hebrew. So I said, well, who, who's that calling you speaking in Hebrew? And he used to say, oh, you know, it's the Shabak, which is, you know, Hebrew for, for Shin Bet. Um, the, the General Security Service is its uh, full title. Um, and it's like, yeah, they're just harassing me and they're, they're saying all this kind of stuff like they're going to, you know, I, I don't think I can repeat what they said. Like it was just, it was just basically it was terrible threats against him and his family. And I was kind of shocked because, I mean, I'd read about such things happening, but, you know, when you're actually hearing about it happening to your friend, um, it, 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 it kind of hits you more, I suppose. And, um, it was, um, you know, and also the way he kind of took it in his stride of like, well, this is a normal thing. It happens all the time. And he kind of, I mean, I, again, I couldn't understand the Hebrew, but he was kind of giving it back. Um, um, but, you know, the point was he was an organizer. He was a popular organizer and well known in his local village and so forth for leading these demonstrations against uh, Israeli settlements. Um, and so they were harassing him and they were trying to, you know, intimidate him into backing down, you know, and that's really just a kind of low level example of the kind of things the Shin Bet do. You know, they, they regularly employ torture against Palestinian prisoners, for example. They they carry out um, mass arrests. Um, they do collective punishment, you know, and um, they, they employ the use of collaborators as well. And this seems to be something that was used in the case of Mohammed al-Halabi, where, you know, I've read accounts of um, torture by Shimbet of agents and and the techniques they use in Isra inside Israeli prisons. And one of them uh, that they use is where they, they have um, a, a Palestinian collaborator, which will they will... Uh, then insert into a cell with a prisoner they're trying to extract information from. And um, the idea is that then, then, you know, this collaborator will then sort of pretend to be, oh, you know, I'm part of the resistance and, you know, trying to win their trust and so forth and extract information from them. But more often than not, these collaborators essentially just make things up because they, their um, Shinbet handlers, they're telling them essentially what they want to hear. And so for essentially mercenary meat reasons, and a lot of these collaborators are just criminal elements anyway, so they're, they're inherently untrustworthy. And so they make things up and they sort of say, well, yeah, he said this and he said that and he confessed to doing this and that. Well, this seems to have been what happened in the case of uh, Al-Halabi, where the, a collaborator has said, oh, yeah, he confessed to me that he did this siphoning off. And the judges... Um, 
sentencing seems to have been um, almost entirely reliant on the testimony of the false testimony of one of these collaborators, which you know is is inherently questionable in itself. And, and we don't even. I mean, this is another extraordinary aspect of it. We don't even the, the ruling that was made in June by the judge in this kangaroo court wasn't even released. You know, it was a two hundred fifty full-page document and but it was classified it was designated to be a classified document it was complete it was kept completely secret from the public nobody can scrutinize it and its claims there you know there was some briefing to the israeli press about some of its contents so we can um ascertain this these details about the collaborators but you know i mean mohammed al-halabi's lawyer has said that you know the only reason this has been kept a secret is because to hide the embarrassment of the state of the israeli state so you know these are the kinds of things that israel shimbet does Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Asa, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. 